Good morning. Someone asked me to give me a brief update of the Camstras. The um, situation is that they are unable to see their daughter, but about probably 30 to minutes to an hour a day. It's come and go. Most of the time they're out in the courtyard with the rest of us, and depending on the situation of the infants in the room with her and the flu situation which is going on down there, it's basically an epidemic. They, they might be in there for five or ten minutes and they ask them to leave because someone else, something's happening to the other patient. She is in intensive care. And so most of the time they're, they're out in the courtyard with the rest of us visiting or praying or sitting with us. So um, when I talk to Trevor, there's times where they maybe saw her for 10 or 15 minutes the whole day because of circumstances. So pray for them. It's, it's, it's very difficult. Pray for his parents. They're unsaved and, and going through this time with them. And so we're praying that the Lord would speak to them even in an incidence like this. And so we would ask for those prayers. And then both Leo and Trevor are both very sick, and you might pray for them to recover because they're going through a very difficult time. When we were there on Monday, it was probably 85 during the day. It was probably 45 by the time the sun went down around 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So the swing in temperature is not helping their illness at all. And so you might just you might pray for them. They're, they're getting a tremendous amount of support from the brothers and sisters down there. There's probably anywhere from... 20 to 25 people coming and going as the day rolls along. And her family was there, but they've now gone back to Ensenada, so fewer of her family will be there. So it's, there's a burden on them because I, I know with Trevor particularly that he feels like you know he needs to take care of those are the people he ministers to, and he feels like he needs to continue to minister to them. Most of them are there to minister to him, but just if you know Trevor, that's... That's his burden is to continue to minister to those who have come to comfort him. So pray for them. They, they definitely need our prayers. We're going to look at a lot of verses, but let's start with Colossians 1, 25 through 28. We have a very gracious God, and I appreciate the songs that David chose this morning. I feel like Gideon, when the Lord came along to him and he was unsure of something, and he assured him that he should go down and listen in on the camp to be encouraged by what the Lord has done. And, and so we're going, to talk, we're going to talk about relationships today. We're going to talk about knowing Christ and what that means. In Colossians 1, in verse 25, we read this, Wherefore I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God has made known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect unto Jesus Christ. Let's ask God to add the blessing to the, his word. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity. We can speak well of your son. We thank you for your son, Father. We thank you for all that he did at Calvary on our behalf. We thank you, Father, that when we were yet without strength, when we were unable to help ourselves, Father, you in love sent your son to die for us as sinners, and we give you thanks for that. Father, again, we would speak well of your son, and we'd ask that our hearts might be pricked 
at the greatness of your son, Father, that we might surely turn to him and be able to say, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. We thank you in the name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What I'd like to talk about is really what we find in verse 28, and that's whom we preach. I think sometimes we forget that it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that we can have. I appreciate the songs that we sing. One of, one of my favorite lines in all the songs is the last song we sang, and I just want to read it because it speaks to me, and it reminds me about myself. The song, None But Christ Can Satisfy, is really written as a, as a song of salvation. It's really written what Christ can do for you. But in the second verse, it says, I sighed for rest and happiness. I yearn for them, not thee. And I, I want to tell you that that can be and has been my experience as a Christian. That I want what Christ can bring, and I desire what Christ can bring, but I'm not sure that I always long for Christ. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. John 17, 3 says this, Eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ and God the Father. I think sometimes we get in our idea that it's not knowing a person, but it's knowing a lot of do's and don'ts. That somehow we have to keep a list of things in order to please God. And we miss out that it's a relationship with Jesus Christ that we're talking about. So I might challenge you and ask you a question. How do you know Jesus Christ? If life eternal is knowing Jesus Christ, how do you know Jesus Christ? What would be... What would you tell me would be the reason you know Jesus Christ? And I put some of these lists, some of these things down. If you were to talk to someone, and he says, someone might say, well, I know God, I go to church. They might say, I, go, I know God because I raised my hand at an invitation to receive Christ. Or I know God because I said a prayer. I said the sinner's prayer, even. And then there's others who might say, well, of course I'm a Christian because my ringtone is a worship song. I'm raising my children in the church, and I'm raising my children to love God. Maybe I have a Christian bumper sticker, even. Or maybe I was baptized. And what I hope to do today is, is, is define the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. There's a number of young men in the audience, and some of them who are recently engaged. And with young men, there comes this time in their relationship where most of the time it's a female, but once in a while it's a male, that wants to define the relationship. Where is this relationship and where is it going? Now, some young men get cold feet at that time and they leave because they're not ready to make a commitment. But if they are, they usually go to Jared and there's a ring involved. And so I, my question today is, how would you define your relationship with Jesus Christ? How would you define your relationship with Jesus Christ? I, I would suggest a couple categories. I know a lot about Jesus Christ. I'm an enthusiastic admirer of Jesus Christ. And then the last one, I know Jesus Christ intimately. 
I know Jesus Christ intimately. Sometimes we talk in generalities that you know somebody. I happen to be a sports fan. And as a sports fan, I could tell you I know sports figures. When I was growing up, the Dodgers were my team, and I could tell you a lot about the 60 Dodgers. I can tell you batting averages. I can tell you lineups. I can tell you... But if I was walking down the street, as much as I know about those guys, I... They wouldn't know me, and I wouldn't know them. I have a lot of facts, but I don't know them. And so my question is, do you know Jesus Christ? Let's turn over to Ephesians 5. The Bible would tell us That our relationship with Christ is the true of a picture that we have in our relationship with our spouse or in our relationship in marriage. Let's look at Ephesians 5. We'll start with verse 40. For we are members of the body of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife. And the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery by speak concerning Christ and the church. And I would suggest to you that that intimate relationship that a man and wife can have is the same thing that Jesus Christ wants with us. The word to know is gnosko in the, in the Greek. It's used 223 times in the New Testament. Jesus in the Old Testament, one of the first instances of the know is in, Adam, is in Genesis 4.1, and it says that Adam knew his wife. And that's where we get this idea of one flesh from. The idea is to know people relationally, intimately, or to know completely and to be completely known. The Hebrew root is yada, and it appears 940 Seven times. It's a very common word. When we turn over to Psalms 139, let's, turn, let's look at Psalms 139. And what's amazing to me is what God says about us. And we have an extremely gracious God. It's a great chapter. It's a chapter everybody should read as a, as a reminder of what a great God we have. But verse 1 says this, Psalms 139 and verse 1, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsittings, mine uprisings. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it. Altogether, He knows us so intimately that he knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows our words before we speak them. And it's the same word know that it speaks about knowing a husband and a wife. Do we know God? 
Do we know a lot about God and a lot of facts, but we don't know God? Read now the New King James in Jeremiah 4.22. He says this, For my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are silly children. They have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but do good. They have no knowledge. The Jews thought they knew God. And yet his son came, and they didn't recognize him. It's not enough to know about. There's so much more than that. Turn over to Matthew, if you would, 23. The religious leaders of Jesus' day bragged that they were the only ones who knew God. They bragged that they were the only ones who, un- who understood God. They were the only ones who could tell others about God. They're the only ones who could make it clear what God wanted. And Jesus has this to say about them in Matthew 23 and 13. Matthew 23 and 13. This reminds me of the woes in Isaiah. You guys are going through Isaiah right now. He pronounces woes in Isaiah. It's the same idea. Woe is a cry of anguish. And he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought to be these ye, ought ye to have done, and not to leave the others undone. We get so caught up in the practice of the tradition and the practice what we think others want to see, and what we think others want to see in us as a Christian, that we forget. We forget about our relationship with Christ. And they were guilty of that. They were guilty of that. Woe unto ye, ye blind guides, which strain a gnat and swallow a camel. Verse 25, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup of the platter, but within they are full of extortions and excess. We dress nice to go to church. We do the right things outwardly, but inwardly, Something's missing. Inwardly, something's missing. Thou blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which, which, which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. The truth of the gospel is, is that you've been redeemed, that there should be a change from the inside out. It's not outside in. It's inside out. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you also, you are like whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead man's bones and of all uncleanness. The truth of the matter is we can't tell if you're a Christian from looking on the outside. You might be doing everything right. And I'm easy to fool. But God's not fooled. 
God can tell you what kind of relationship you have with him. And if you know Jesus Christ intimately, we get caught up in the what. And I'm afraid we miss the who. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, if ye had been in the days of our fathers, you would have not been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. I think 28 sums it up. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but, we, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. The problem was that these men measured their relationship with God by keeping rules and regulations that others could observe. The problem was that these men measured their relationship with God by keeping rules and regulations that others could observe. I can be guilty of that. Being there on Sunday, as long as I'm there on Sunday, other people think I'm doing fine as a Christian. Then if I come Wednesday night, they think I'm one of those, you know, almost super Christians. And if I teach Sunday school, well, that even just puts me a higher level. But the problem is that's not what God uses to measure. Because he's interested in the heart. He's interested... And in the heart. Intellectual knowledge and honoring the heritage was more important to the Pharisees than surrendering themselves to God. See, you can do all of those outward things and still be the boss of your own life. You can do all of those things and not be surrendered to God at all. Because God wants the heart. And Jesus rebukes them, and he rebukes them severely, and I think it should be a warning to us. Don't get caught up in the outward. It's easy to sing, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. But is it? Is it? Don't measure your relationship with Jesus Christ by saying and doing the right things. Turn over to Philippians 3. One of the problems with saying and doing the right things, and if you have leaders who want to say and do the right things, and that's what they stress, what the Lord Jesus tells us is they become a burden to the people. We weigh people down with what we want outwardly, And we're less interested about where they are at inwardly in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul knew what it meant to keep rules and honor the heritage. And one of the great things that happened to Paul is he came to realize that it meant nothing. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He kept all the rules. You could measure him outwardly and he was the star. No one could master him. No one could succeed him. Or exceed him, as I should say. And look what, he, look what he has to say, Philippians 3 and verse 8. 
verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom have I suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. He knew all the do's and don'ts. He says that's nothing. That's nothing. He wanted to know. He wanted to know Jesus Christ. He was willing to give up everything that he had held important to know Jesus Christ. To know Jesus Christ. So if it's not doing things, what is it? And if I can't remeasure my relationship with God in what I do, what is it? And that's a good question. I would suggest there's four questions I would ask myself to measure my relationship with Jesus Christ and to find out if it's real or if I'm just going through outward motions. The first one, when you hurt, where do you go for comfort? When you hurt, where do you go for comfort? We're all going to experience pain in this life. The Lord in his upper room ministry said, in this world you'll have troubles. And he was absolutely right. But when we go through those troubles, where do you turn? We laugh at people in the world who turn to alcohol or drugs when they have troubles. But where do we turn? Jeremiah 2.13 says this. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed themselves out cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. And if our first reaction when we heard is to turn anywhere but Jesus Christ, then we're missing the point. Because there's only one who can sustain you through a crisis. There's only one who fully understands the crisis and fully understands you. And that's Jesus Christ. But notice it's two evils because we reject him and we turn to something else. And it's easy to identify in others. It's much harder to identify in ourselves. When I'm doing marriage counseling, that's one of the things that often comes up. Is do you have an intimate relationship? And this is one of the questions. Who do you turn to for comfort? Do you bury yourself in work? Do you go out and hit balls at the driving range? What do you do when you face a trial? Do you turn to your wife and have your comfort from her or from your husband because you have an intimate relationship and you know each other best and you're best able to provide the comfort that the other needs? So the question is, where do we turn when we face trials? The second one, 
What is most important to you? Often we can tell what's important to us when we lose it. When we lose it. Some level of disappointment or frustration is normal. But if we make ourselves sick over it or we just wail over it, how sad. We were visiting in a house of a family and there was a recent death of a movie star in a traffic accident and the teenage daughter started to wail. And I just, it grieved me. Because it showed what was important to her. Luke 9.23 says this, And he said to them, them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Because sometimes it's our reputation is what's more important to us. It's our possessions. It's our sports teams. Sometimes it's just doing well because our self-worth is wrapped up in how well we do. An illustration, a father takes his son golfing. He's been promising to take him golfing. He finally takes him out golfing because he tells his son he wants to take him golfing so he can spend quality time with him. And the father's a golfer like me, and he has a terrible round. And the longer, the more his shots go astray, and the more putts he misses, the more moody he becomes, and the more frustrated he becomes, and the more upset he becomes. And he has a miserable day. And on the ride home with the son, the son says, I thought you wanted to spend time with me. I thought I was important. And the son got the clear message that the father's golf game and doing well playing golf was more important than the son. And sometimes we are like that. You can tell what's important by what you pay attention to and what you spend your time doing and how you react when you run into frustrations. I would suggest you ask your friends, your spouse, your fellow workers, what they think is most important to you. They'll tell you. Paul Holland's a missionary from France that's living in Phoenix. We went to the Elders and Workers Together conference, Trevor, Paul Holland, and Don, one of the elders from the Phoenix Assembly, drove from Phoenix to Colorado Springs and spent a lot of time together. I can tell you what's most important to Paul Holland. He doesn't meet anyone without introducing them to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the most important thing to him. You don't spend very long with that man before it becomes very obvious what's important to him. I didn't matter whether we were buying gas. It didn't matter whether we were stopping in a restroom. It didn't matter if we were stopping at a rest stop. It didn't matter if we were buying food. He had a track and he wanted to tell people about the most important person in his life, Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, when I was done, I knew what was most important in his life. Ask those around you, what's the most important person in your life? Ask those around you who they believe is most valuable to you. 
what you're most frustrated about. They'll tell you. I know friends that I almost think their sports teams are the most important thing. Because when they, their team loses, they're miserable. I have one friend who calls me every time his team loses to rehash the game with me. And he's a good Christian friend. But he's miserable when his team loses. And so what's most important to you? Question number three. What is it that really gets you excited? I've heard people with great detail tell me what makes them excited. It could be going to a concert. It could be going to a World Series. It could be their team going to the Super Bowl. There are things that make you excited. You are the only one who knows. I'll tell you, I'm a recovering sportsaholic, and I'll be first to admit it. Is that what makes you excited? Is it shooting a good golf score? Is it doing well on a test? Is it working hard for that promotion and getting it? What makes you excited? Luke 15, 6 and 7 says this, And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Do you get excited about Jesus? Do you get excited when a soul comes to Jesus? Are you excited about that enough that you're out witnessing so others might know Jesus Christ? What makes you excited? Is it the birth of your child? Is it where you go, how you do? I gotta ask myself these questions. Is it others people thinking I'm spiritual because I can stand up here and put words together? Is it other people think I'm spiritual because I sacrifice time and effort for people? Because all that, as you read in 1 Corinthians 13, means absolutely nothing if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't replace the things with the real thing, which is the intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. Is that really what makes you excited? Are you as excited about Jesus as you are about your team winning or losing? About your promotion or about any other thing that makes you excited? What makes you excited? These are tough questions. I'd ask them myself to, and had to answer them. And it's a struggle. The last one. There could be a lot more. But what do you treasure? What do you treasure? Matthew 6 and 21 says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When you're in a marriage, you're intimately involved with someone. You know what they treasure. You know what makes them excited. You know how well you know them. I was doing some marriage counseling, and I asked the couples to write things down to start off just to see what the problems are and where we're at. And I asked them to write down what their husband or wife's favorite thing to do. And I've had more than one husband or wife couple 
not know that answer? How intimate is their relationship when they don't know what the other, anything about the other person, especially what their favorite thing to do? I mean, sometimes in marriage, the marriage is take out the trash, buy groceries, cook dinner. And if that's your marriage, if it's all do's and don'ts and just checking off check marks, guess what? You well know from experience, and if you don't, you maybe will find out. That is no marriage. That's going through the motions. That's doing the right things to do them. There's no love there. There's no intimacy there. And so the question is, how intimate is your marriage? And maybe that's part of the problem is we don't know how to have intimate marriages anymore. And as a result, we don't have intimate relationship with Jesus Christ because we don't know it. It's easy to follow money thinking that it brings satisfaction. Working endless hours to get the promotion and we're living in a society today that dangles the carrot out there and the more you chase it, it's just always just out of reach. And money will never bring satisfaction. And things like your golf game or your sports team, all those are temporal. They're like the cisterns that don't hold water. They're empty. The scriptures call them vain. And they're temporary at best. They might bring a little satisfaction, but it's gone. It's like the cisterns that don't hold water. You fill them up and they're empty. When you're not looking to Jesus Christ for your satisfaction, when you're not involved in an intimate relationship with him, and you've substituted the do's or don'ts somehow, then we have a problem. So the question is, just like with the husband and wife, is Jesus Christ your one and only? No, we all, we all sit there and we, we, we hear about marriages that, that are slipping and the wife or the husband fought, find someone at work or they find someone and they start having intimate conversations with that person that they should be having with their husband and wife. Some people turn to their parents and share things with their parents they should be sharing with their husband or their wife. Well, the same thing goes. Where are we at with Jesus Christ? Are we distracted by the things of this earth and the things of this world? The test is to help us see if Jesus is our one, one and only. Is our attention divided? How do you get to know Jesus like Paul did? We're going to talk hopefully more about that tonight, but turn over to Matthew 11. It's a verse that's up behind us. It's a great verse. One of the problems with the do's or don'ts, as I mentioned earlier, is that do's or don'ts become a burden. They weigh you down. I can slip into that habit. I can walk up to someone and say, we missed you on Sunday. We haven't seen you on Wednesday night for a while. 
We didn't see you at the conference for all the meetings. The idea is not to present guilt because guilt does one thing. Guilt weighs you down. And the more guilt we pile on you, the more you're willing to do things to please me to remove the guilt. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. Is they put outward signs out and the harder you tried to do them, the, le- the more you failed. The guiltier you felt, the more burdened you were the more difficult it was. And so Christ gives the answer in, in, in verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's only one place to find rest. It's not in the things. It's not in work. It's not in our relationship. There's one thing to find rest, and it's in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It's not in the do's and don'ts. Because actually, the harder you try to keep the do's and don'ts without a relationship with Jesus Christ, guess what? When you have an intimate relationship with your wife, the reason you empty the trash is not because you have a checklist that has to be checked off. You empty the trash because you're in a loving relationship and it's out of love that you empty the trash. So I'm not telling you not to be here on Sunday morning. I'm not telling you not to be here on Wednesday night or Sunday night. I'm not telling you to stay home from the conference. But I am telling you, if you're doing it to fulfill a checklist, you're missing it. And you're missing the greatest part of it. If you do it because you're in love with the Lord Jesus and you're in love with his people, then you got it right. But that should show. It should obviously show in the way you go about your business and what you do. And so he says... Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because, in fact, you won't be burdened, and this won't be this list of responsibilities. We suggested having special meetings one time in a meeting I was an elder at, and they said, and someone said, oh, not another meeting. It was a burden to him to gather with the saints. I would not want to judge the man's heart, but I have to wonder, was it a burden because he wasn't in love with the Lord Jesus and his people? When the things of God become a burden with you, please go back and find out where your relationship is with Jesus Christ. Take my yoke upon me and learn of me. I am meek and lowly in heart. And the thing that he tells us to learn of him What a gracious, loving Savior we have. We had a great break in the bread this morning when people reminded us what a great God we have. What a great Savior we have. We sometimes sing that song that that we know love because of the Savior's depth of woe. God demonstrated his love to us because he spared not his own son. His love can never be doubted. Is that the love you have back for him? Have you been touched by that love? Because he says, learn of me. Not learn about me. Not learn the do's and don'ts. Learn my heart. Because what does he say? I'm meek and lowly in heart. Learn who he is. And then reflect that in the way you live. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I wonder sometimes if the problem we have trusting Jesus Christ in all circumstances and while we allow circumstances to overwhelm us is because we don't know him well enough to trust him. When doing marriage counseling, that's the question. Do you trust them? Do you trust your mate? My wife goes to Mexico for two weeks at a time. Someone said, how, how can you let her go to Mexico? Aren't you, aren't you concerned? I said, no, because I know her. I know her. I trust her because I know her. Can I say that about the Savior? Do I trust the circumstances that he brings into my life are for my good because I know him? Do I have that type of relationship with them? Or am I a Christian who says, woe is me when something difficult comes my way? And so the question is, do you know Jesus Christ like Paul did? Because Paul says, pressed about on every site. But not discouraged. 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. Read what Paul went through. And yet circumstances didn't overwhelm him. Read Philippians where he's in jail, chained to a Roman jailer, and he says, rejoice again. I say rejoice because he knows Christ, and that's what he wants to know, Jesus Christ. God's a jealous God, and he wants your undivided attention. And he wants your undivided loyalty, and he wants your love. Paul could say this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's the question I have to ask myself. Can I say that? Do I have a relationship with Jesus Christ so I could say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? We'll talk a little bit more about this tonight. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the person of your son, that someone we can know. Oh, Father, we thank you that he knows us, that he knew us when we were lost in sin. He knew us when we were without strength. He knew us when we were separated from God, alienated, enemies, and knowing all about us, Father, including our weaknesses and our failures and our sin, he came and willingly died on the cross so that we might know him. Oh, Father, let us not get caught up in the doing and the do's and don'ts, but let us have that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ so out of love, out of love, we become like him, And we serve him and love his people. Father, help us to understand when things become a burden that it's because we've lost that intimacy that we should have with Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we thank you that you're such a gracious God, that you're so patient with us as we fail on a daily basis. And you're right there every time to pick us up, to restore us, and to use us. And so, Father, we would ask that we would 
be able to say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Father, we give you thanks for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. 